What a world you now listening to Talk of Brothers Podcast. Welcome to the Talk of Talk Talk of Brothers Podcast. Podcast. Allow me to reintroduce myself. So, talk of Brothers Podcast. Talk of Brothers. Talk of Brothers. Talk of Brothers Podcast with Smash and Goldie. Goldie and Smash, you guys doing your thing. The mic is contacted. I attract clientele. My brother. Goldie and Smash. Talk of Brothers. That's popping. We ain't worried about nothing. Y'all are now listening to Talk of Brothers. Podcast. What's happening, everybody? It's your boy Godi. And this your boy Smash coming next. I want to welcome you guys to another episode of Talking Brothers Podcast. First of all, Smash, let's apologize to the listeners and the viewers because <laughs> we've been MIA for a minute, and that's only because partially I'm going to blame it on you, but I'm partially <laughs> blame it on me, but more on you. <laughs> Yeah, man, been moving. So, you know, uh, man, once you move, you can't find, you find one thing, but you can't find the other. So it was just like, man, just let's just, yeah. let me get settled first. So you, so you made the move, you all settled in, you, you ready to, to take this thing to a, another level, I, I take it. Yeah, we got to, man. We got, we got to move on. You know what I'm saying? Sky's the limit. There you go. So how how was how was the transition? Was it good, bad, ugly, or was it the worst ever? Or man, out of all the moves I had so far, this has been the most difficult one because uh, we were waiting for a house to get built, and it made so many changes and inconsistencies with that that just just frustrates you to no end. Like closing date is this date, then they move it, then it's this date, then they move it again. It's just ridiculous. You you was a moment a nomad for a minute, man. I was like, <laughs> it was to the point where listeners, he was like, he was frustrated at all of us, and he was like, uh, call back later, man. I'm apologize. We was like, <laughs> we understand, bro. We understand. We know yeah, it's not personal. We know it's just frustrated trying to get that move done. But you retired. You got your retirement beard going. You know, you got your rebellion going. I see you. You know, I'm you gonna save it off. I'm gonna save it off. When? Uh, this week, this week, I'm gonna save it all. A little bit. <laughs> yeah, all right. Stay tuned for this. <laughs> I want to see this beard come off. <laughs> I'm keeping the goatee, but the beard. Yeah. I, I feel you. I feel you. <laughs> Any golf? Nah, man. I haven't golfed in a couple of months, man. My homeboy came down in probably May. Yeah, May. He came down May or first part of June, and we did a little golf, and he kicked my butt. So I got to get back out there. What about yourself? Um, nah, I went to the driving range a couple times just to try to to see what I can do with it. You know, me and that driver have a love-hate relationship, and it's more hate than love. So <laughs> I went out there and knocked it around a little bit to see how that goes. But other than that, man, I hadn't really got a chance to get out. It's been really, really been too hot for me to for me personally to get out there. So and then you know when football season started, me coaching and that kind of that's kind of eating up my time, you know. Oh yeah, you about to be busy, busy. Yeah, very busy. But on that note, for us coming back, um, we have a really really good guest. Her name is uh, Lauren Martin. Um, she's a professor at LSU. Um, I read an article in USA Today, I believe it was, and she said something that inspired, that really took me aback. Cause you know, we always discuss, we always discuss the things about, you know, why the inequalities in blacks and in sports happen and those different type of things. And she put it 
she put it so eloquently that I was like, huh, I didn't even <laughs> think of it that way. And and um, just to give you the quote of what she said, let me pull it up real here real quick. Got me fumbling and stumbling this morning. And um, so she said, we tend to center whiteness. We don't necessarily think about how the rules that we might implement impact other groups because we're thinking about whiteness and white people being the norm. And I was like, for me, that was that was very impactful for me because I didn't I didn't think of it in that in that in that way. Right. And that really kind of put it in perspective of, of how we think about it. But um yeah, so for for going forward, I was like, okay, I, I really need to get a chance to have a conversation with her now. And I thank her, and I'm gonna thank as soon as we get her in, in the show. I want to thank her for 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 the work that she's doing and, and and the enlightenment that she's giving me. I don't know how impactful it was for you, but it was very impactful for me. <laughs> but um, yeah, so so Lauren Martin, long list of long list of she's an author. Um, she was born and raised in, in uh, Nyack, New York. She's a former Division One volleyball player. She holds degrees uh, from undergrad degree from Fordham, master degree from Buffalo. Um, she, she got her PhD from Albany. Um, she's a professor in humanities and social sciences and professor in departments of African and African-American studies at the University of uh, Louisiana, Louisiana State University. Go Tigers, you know how I feel about that. So let's let's bring Lauren on in and uh, let's get this, this, this discussion going. How you doing, Lauren? I'm doing well, how are you? I'm pretty good. Thank you yeah. for joining us. Well, thank you for the invitation. I appreciate it. No doubt. <laughs> well, so you're at LSU, and as you can see in my title and my name, Go D, I'm originally from Louisiana, big Tiger fan. Thank you. <laughs> are you, are you, well, you're, you're a former volleyball player, so I take it that you're a big sports fan yourself. Yes, I do enjoy sports, playing and watching and analyzing. <laughs> definitely, definitely. And that's what, that's what got us here today. <laughs> so tell us about yourself um what made you focus in your career focus on actually going into the because because i remember talking to people and uh trying to figure out my career path when i was growing up and i said well maybe sociology and they were like what you want to do make a friend so but <laughs> what, <laughs> what made you focus on that particular part of studies that's a great question. I had some really great mentors and really great teachers uh, from high school through my uh, graduate work that believed in me and saw a potential in me that I didn't even see in myself. So uh, I took courses in sociology and African African American studies at Fordham University and had professors like uh, Dr. Mark Chapman and Dr. Uh, Mark Mason, who said to me, you know, well, what are you doing after school? I think you have a lot of talent. And they connected me with Dr. Henry Lewis Taylor in Buffalo. So would you like to earn a free master's degree? Despite the cold weather, I was like, absolutely. <laughs> so I went there and did that and I worked for about a year before going to the PhD program. And I just knew that that was my calling, that I wanted to do research, that I wanted to teach, and then I wanted to serve others. And so it worked out well for me. Awesome. Okay. Awesome. Yeah, I was um, I was excited when Godia said we got you to come on the show because uh, myself, I, I like... Um, have a degree in social psychology so when i saw all your background stuff i was like oh my goodness like 
she gonna school me today. So I was I was all happy and excited <laughs> to hear from it. And then I saw you had the you mainly focus in the um, you know African American studies, which I was very curious about as well. And so um, I was I was excited. I got a lot of questions as well. So I'm, I'm glad that you're on the show today. Thank you. So let's let's get into because with with the hbcu versus pwi mm -hmm. debate being really hot right now and and looking at your background you've you predominantly attended pwis mm -hmm. um and and now you're at lsu what what made you do you feel any difference between attending or students attending a pwi versus hbcu and and how does how does each can affect that 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 prospective student differently? Yeah, I think that students should go where they're supported. We started uh, a motto after we became a department of African African American Studies uh, at LSU, where we said that students should uh, major where they matter. So I firmly believe mm -hmm. that that people should go to school, whether it's a HBCU or a PWI, they should go where they matter, uh, where people are going to support them and are invested in their success. And as you mentioned, I didn't go to an HBCU, but I'm surrounded mm -hmm. by people who have, um, including my nephews who went to uh, Alabama A&M and my other nephew who graduated from uh, Tuskegee. Uh, mm -hmm. And, you know, they say wonderful things about their experiences and that they wouldn't change it for the world. And I don't doubt that. And I'm, I'm sure that special things happen at HBCUs that, um, you know, Black students at PWIs don't necessarily experience. But I can also say that at LSU, that the Department of African African American Studies, for example, and the professors there are really invested in the students and we support the students with all the stuff that they have to endure being at a PWI, being uh, in Baton Rouge and being black in America. So it's really about being supported regardless of where you are. Right. And see, and that was going to be one of my questions with you being at LSU predominantly, you know, as a PWI, are there any challenges that you face teaching African American studies? Every day. <laughs> 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 I mean, it took a lot. Um, you know, our program is a little over 25 uh, years old. Uh, and think about that. Other places are, you know, we're celebrating 50 years of having a Black Studies program. And here we were celebrating 25. And, ju and uh, just this past year, we became the first Department of African and African American Studies in the state of Louisiana. It is 2021. Uh, we fought we fought long and hard to try to get a required African and African American studies of course at LSU and we got pushed back um, mainly from other faculty um, not necessarily from students and from the general public so yeah we got it we're, we're built for it though uh, but it comes at us from many uh, directions and it's a daily fight right <laughs> and how has the education for for students of color that actually attend the pwi how has how has this program helped them because a, a lot of times we come from predominantly african-american um social social backgrounds how does that help them in the transition of, of being able to fit in because i know it's like kind of an awkwardness for african-american students to actually attend the pwi how has this program helped them in that transition 
Well, it's great when they know about us, right? So if they know about us, then they're taking our classes, they're connecting with us, and they realize immediately that not only do they have an advisor and someone that's going to support them for their time at LSU, but that they have a mentor for life. And so that's wonderful for people who know about us, who come into LSU with that knowledge. Unfortunately, you know, there's some folks by the time they're seniors, they say, I didn't even know that we had a Department of African (laughs) Studies. They're surprised to learn that there's an African-American cultural center on campus. They would tell me that um, it wasn't included on the tour when they came as freshmen and that they Mm -hmm. didn't find it until someone told them about it and they wish they knew about it. So, you you know, for people who know we're out there and that we uh, advocate on their behalf, you know, they end up having a positive experience and we're able to help them navigate any challenges that they might face. It's a little harder for those who are unaware of our existence, but, you know, through word of mouth, we're able to as, to reach, you know, a, um, a lot of students. Awesome. Yeah, I know, like, in high school, because I, I played uh, football in high school, but, um, and I had to ha- have an elective, of course, but uh, I got to take an African-American's history class. And I was just blown away with the amount of stuff that came out. It actually was one of my favorite classes in high school. And I took a lot away with that. So from, from the class that you teach at LSU, what do you hope people take away from, what is one thing you hope people take away from your class? Yeah, so I think it's important for people to be informed uh, citizens that question everything. <laughs> so I think I okay. hope that um, that our students will be critical thinkers, that they'll think in- analytically. They'll be the kind of friend that you hate going to the movies with or watching anything <laughs> because they want to question everything. They want to analyze you know, why the American flag is placed in a particular scene in a movie or why there seems to be this um, running theme of a white savior complex those are the kind of students okay. that that we try to, to produce that are always asking questions and always seeking answers and are really committed to positive um changes that they want to be change makers and to transform society and leave it in a better place than they found it okay awesome awesome so let's let's get to the point of why of, of your introduction introduction to me um the we, we, what I spoke about earlier about the quote that I took from the USA Today piece. Um, how, why do you think that hasn't been any change or shifting gears towards them, at least in sports? Because we see now sports is in the forefront of trying to to get to that equality level. Um, why do you think it was such a, a pushback this year with the Olympics? Yeah, well, I think that one thing that we have to remember, and I know that you all understand this full well, but a lot of people in the general public still like to think about sports as apolitical and just a form of entertainment. And clearly it's not. Sports is a social institution, which means that it's impacted uh, by all the isms that impact society more broadly. So if you have sexism in broader society, if you have racism in society, it's going to show up in sports. And so we shouldn't be surprised by that. People like Dr. Uh, Harry Edwards have been telling us about that for um, decades. And so it's once we understand that, then I think it makes sense when we see, you know, issues like the soul cap with the controversy about mm-hmm. 
whether the black swimmers could wear uh, swim caps that were designed specifically for their natural hair and then to have, you know, governing bodies overrule that. Uh, and, you know, just recognizing too the centrality of race in America. And so while, you know, people thought that we had a great uh, awakening after the killing of George Floyd and we saw a lot of movement, history tells us, as Derek Bell has described, that we will see peaks of progress, that we will, we will have those moments where we feel like we're making change, only to find out that we're going back to business as usual. So we have to find a way to break that cycle in the broader society, but also in sports. So I think I think this leads into something that I saw uh, while we were doing our research. Um, you spoke on on something about it was, and I'm, I wrote this down. So hopefully I didn't get it wrong. But politics <laughs> and respectability and respectability of politics. Yes, yes. So can you expound on that for us? Yeah. So thank you for bringing that up. Uh, so I was introduced to a book by uh, Evelyn uh, Higginbotham uh, called um, "Righteous Discontent." And one of the chapters, she talks about the politics of respectability. And so what she describes is the role of black women in like the late 1880s through the 1920s and their um, uh, desire to uh, control their images and to de uh, determine their own destinies. And these were largely black women that were associated with the National Baptist Convention. And so um, they were fighting against lynching, for example, they were advocating for um, adequate housing. Uh, they were uh, trying to um, make domestic servants a more respected and you know well-paid uh, occupation. And again, trying to uh, deal with stereotypes and myths about black women in particular, but also looking at the entire black community. Now, they, it wasn't as if they didn't have any issues. They also there were also class issues in that yes, yeah, some middle-class black women were trying to tell so-called lower-class black women how they should behave in places they should go and places they should not go. But what I think is important is, and is often forgotten is that these black women were really taking the lead on trying to control their own images and their own destinies. And they were committed to social justice issues that, uh, that affected them as well as the broader black community. Now we fast forward to respectability politics and we're talking about things that annoy me like signs on the front of a store that says, it, you know, no sagging, or you, you, so you can't come into the store, <laughs> things yeah. like that. Or when people try to tell uh, younger people, especially how to engage with uh, law enforcement if they get pulled over, uh, uh, as if, you know, doing all those things will lead to an increased likelihood that you're going to make it home. And we know that, see, there are examples of people who have done everything, you know, that law enforcement yeah. has told us we should do, that parents have told us we should do, and still they end up uh, dying uh, unnecessarily. And so uh, people oftentimes use those terms interchangeably and they don't mean the same thing. So I'm so glad you asked that question. And I hope that people will um, use more caution about <laughs> the politics of respectability versus respectability politics. Okay. Thank you. So let's get down to the nitty gritty of this thing. So with the NIL rule mm -hmm. and me being a big LSU fan, I followed, I followed them exclusively more than I follow any other university. And LSU has been one of the schools that's been in the forefront of this NIL situation. 
Um, for me, my personal opinion, you know, you talked about Ed O'Bannon on your TED talk, and um, I was I have been a sore loser for for years, <laughs> for years, right? Over over my EA and my video game being taken away from me. Now, as a as a black man and and a, and a, and a former athlete, I understand why, right? But I still was like, you know, my selfish reasons. I still wanted it, but now that I see the NIL rules coming out. And I still think, for me, um, my opinion, I want to get your opinion on it. My opinion on it is that it's still not enough. I think it was just it was just a handout to appease the masses versus actually doing what it needs to do. We're talking about a, a multi-billion dollar industry that are making money off the backs of, of people that look like us. And they're, now it's to the point where it's a, a small token of you can go out and get endorsements, but we still got to cut the pie with you equally for as much money as we make. Where where are you now? We had that TED talk two years ago. Where are you now? You was in the forefront of this. Where are you now? And how do you feel about NIL going forward right now? Yeah, I think like everything else, when, when some folks don't want to change, it takes the intervention from uh, the Supreme Court, for example, uh, to make them to do the right thing. It's not that they see the humanity of uh, of uh, Black athletes or uh, college athletes in general. Here you have, they fought tooth and nail not to have this happen. Uh, right. So it really does sometimes take judicial um, intervention to compel folks to do something that clearly they should be doing. I mean, this would not be tolerated in any other industry, as um, you know. Someone mentioned in the um, in the uh, findings and opinion uh, uh, for the Austin uh, case in particular. I mean, all of us, you know, we wouldn't appreciate it if someone just decided to use our image and get a lot of money off of it and think that that was okay and, and right. to try to explain it away and so it shouldn't you know college athletes shouldn't have to do that and especially when we're talking about those sports like men's basketball and football where black men are overrepresented and it's not a coincidence that you know, that's where the resistance is and the one thing that I want to note and what I think is going to be interesting to watch and again to your question no I don't think it goes far enough and that um, it's a step forward but we have a long way to go and I think it's just going to upset and restructure college sports for the um, you know next few years. Um, but I, what I think is going to be interesting to watch too is that you know some people initially were commenting, you know, saying things like, "Oh, it's going to be like the wild wild west." I don't even know what that really means, but <laughs> I, I remember hearing that. Um, but another thing to think about too, and we've seen this in the past with professional athletes, with like the values uh, assessed to um, baseball cards, for example, and other trading cards. That you know sometimes someone who's not even really a great college athlete may end up getting a lot of money. <laughs> compared right, right. to uh, someone who still has a stellar record, um, but because of their race and or their gender or how they identify or their sexuality, they might mm. be disadvantaged when it comes to NIL. So there's so many different levels and layers to consider. And also to your point, the member institutions still have a lot of power and authority where they can say, you know, no, you can't do that or no, we don't like that. 
Uh, and so, and to tell some of the players in some instances how they can spend their money. Like, who does that? Like, you can't tell anyone else you, you can only use it for this purpose or that purpose. That's your money. You do what you want to do with it. So, just the paternalism that continues um, in, in college athletics is a shame. But again, um, I'm sure that a lot of people never thought they'd see the day where NIL would even become a reality. But again, I just find it interesting that it wasn't because people think this is the right thing to do. But, you know, you have if so if one if Florida is going to pass a law saying that you can make money, how is Louisiana not going to do that? Because everybody's going to Florida. <laughs> if you right. want to be competitive and you want to repeat the 2020 season, you got to keep up whether you think it's the right thing to do or not. So did they did they with with them and and how they implemented this thing at, at LSU, did they did they ask you any questions about how this should, how this plays in, or did they get any department help from other departments, or was this just a an upper level type of situation on how they was going to implement this at your university and roll it out? Well, I would say that um, they uh, at LSU, I know that they had uh, outside uh, entities to come in and provide education for administrators and the coaches on the landscape, um, you know, what was being proposed and what you could and could not do. So they've been, as far as I have uh, observed, doing a good job of just trying to educate people about the landscape and how it's changing and what we know and what we don't know. Now, uh, I don't know the extent to which they're aware of my TED talk and my right. published research, but in my role as the faculty athletics representative, they're always quite transparent with me in terms of what they're doing to educate, you know, the administrators and coaches and the college athletes. Yeah, because you have, I mean, I would think they don't, I don't know if they realize how much of a great resource right. you are in that field of sports and and equality as far as is how this because you called it hold on let me let me put this I, I you know this is see how you put it I don't want to misquote complex the industrial there it is you called it the what did she call it smash is it the, the industrial sports industrial complex? Sport industrial complex that's what you called it and we see that in society but then you pegged it as in sports. <laughs> And how does that how does that play um, on the psyche of the college on a college athlete that you noticed? Yeah, so I'll, I'll be honest with you. When I was approached about being a faculty athletics representative, I was like, they're not going to pick me because I don't know if they've seen my TED talk or they read my stuff. <laughs> and so I was pretty surprised. But the fact that I became the rep, um, you know, around the time of the killing of George Floyd worked out well, if you would, because I could help to lead some of those conversations about race and, and things of um, that nature. But I would say that, you know, over the eight years that I've been at LSU that I have observed that um, many of the college athletes, they understand full well about this college industrial complex and their world in it. And so, you know, I've had some college athletes who knew that they were just going to be around for a couple of years and they did their time and they were just nice and polite and stayed eligible. And as soon as it was time to go, they went or, you know, others who were there for a year. And then, you know, others recognize that they're 
they're not going to have that opportunity because less than 2% of you know college athletes actually go on to play professionally. And so they try to make the most of it and try to do paid internships and attend leadership seminars and look for uh, employment or decide to go to graduate school. So I, I think that athletes are uh, well aware of uh, the way in which the system is structured. And they also know, um, you know, with social media that they may not be able to say everything that they want to say. And so whenever, you know, different institutions talk about talking to college athletes to ask what they think, I suggest as a wait, no, don't talk to them. Talk to the folks that are in the professional league now because they're free to tell you what right. the right. experience was. Uh, and, and so it's great when that happens. So we uh, we talk a lot about the uh, sports and all that stuff, me and Go D. So, and I want to ex- see if you can expound a little bit because you said earlier, like the NIL was a good thing and you'd like to see it go further. I would like to know how you'd like to see it go further because I know Go D has a stance sometimes, and correct me if I'm wrong, Go D, but he says like sometimes the athlete should just go to school for athlete, for, for uh, the sport, and then students should just go to school to be students. They should kind of separate the two instead of being a student athlete. Um, And I just wanted to see what you thought about that. Yeah, so uh, I don't know if you all are familiar. I co-authored a book called Pay to Play. I think it came out in 2017. And so I tried to, you know, answer some of these same questions. And not to say that I have all the answers, um, but but I was imagining, you know, a similar situation where maybe you have this relationship between, um, you know, um, an elite college program and a professional team. And and those college athletes are paid you know, their full market value. And it's not tied to some mythology about them being students at all. They they want to play professionally. Maybe, you know, you have different development leagues, but they're compensated the fair market value. Then you could also have like, you know, we had prior to all these big money contracts where you did actually have athletes who were paid and they played at a collegiate level, but it wasn't revenue generating. So you also have that model. And, you know, and I think that the you know, combination of those things uh, would be helpful. In the end, I just want to see that college athletes who are worth, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars or generating billions of dollars get some of that money and they stop trying to tell them that, you know, if we, we pay your tuition, give you a place to live and throw some, you know, sneakers your way that that, that you should be happy. That, that, yeah. is, that is not appropriate. And we have to do better yeah and I, I just i just look at the baseball model and i look at the european model and how they baseball has a rule where you either go pro as a, as a high schooler which is great or if you do tend to uh, if you do tend a, a university you have to stay within three years and that gives the student athlete an, an option right either i take this money and i go pro and i can negotiate where they pay for my university down the line um you see people like gerard smith who's going back to mm-hmm. north carolina a&t to play golf and and get his degree and then you have the european model where they they are identify their best athletes and they put them in training camps as as youngsters and that's their career field right whether they bottom out or not they still have a chance to develop what their passions are whereas athletes their passion we know their passion is really not academics their passion is playing the sport that they love 
that one that you say that two percent of athletes who don't get a chance to go professional they go professional a lot of other things but at least give them the option to choose to make that choice because at the end of the day it's their life and they can choose how to run their life going forward so um that, that's just my stance on it. i really think that this was a farce the nil was a farce for them to <laughs> cut the pie up just cut the pie up and, and pay the athletes accordingly and i mean down the line i mean all for the non-revenue generating sports they all deserve a piece of, of of the winnings because at the end of the day without those athletes there would be no no revenue source for them to even try to hold on to you know yeah, and the issue about personal choice, I think, is really uh, important. It shouldn't be understated. And so, you know, literally um, the system that we have now is saying that if you want to play, you know, if basketball professionally, you have to go to college. You know, right. of course, there might be other options, but for the most part, that's the route that you have to take. And similarly for the NFL, and it, it shouldn't be that way. You know, we might all say it's important to have a certain level of education, but your athletic career is not going to be so long. So when people talk about, you know, folks just stay around to get a degree, I'm questioning what their motivations are. I'm like, let them go play, and then when they are finished, then they can come back and get a degree if they want to we'll still be here hopefully right, <laughs> we right. universities will still be in business because i heard you on your ted talk you you said that um there the athletes have a limited amount of majors that they can take yeah that and so that plays into my in my theory why is why is it there are limited majors that these athletes can actually put themselves into to, to get an education that was new to me. <laughs> yeah, so I think that some institutions will say that that's not true, that, you know, athletes are free to select any degree program that they want. But the reality is that you have some degree programs, and I'll just use one as an example, like engineering. Um, and they may have a very strict, you know, program of study where you have to take courses in a particular sequence. And then those courses may all only be offered at certain times and in, and in certain semesters. And so if you have all these demands placed upon you as a college athlete and you have practice and you got film and you got obligations to the community that might not work with your schedule so in theory yeah I could say I want to major in engineering but if it doesn't go along with my schedule um, as an athlete I bet you I'm not going to be an uh, engineering major uh, so you have those kinds of uh, issues and challenges and so when you look at uh, the rosters and you see what uh, the majors are, especially for athletes in high revenue generating sports. It's not a coincidence that you're going to start seeing some themes and not to say that these are not, you know, a rigorous degree programs, but um, it's not by happenstance that a lot of the college athletes might be in business administration and kinesiology and so forth. And as much as a uh, Many uh, college athletes, black college athletes in particular, may really love uh, African and African American studies. They oftentimes uh, cannot major or do not major in it because in, the, in many colleges of humanities and social sciences, you're required to take a language. And that's a, that's a challenge and a barrier, especially <laughs> for some um, black college athletes who are not interested in taking four semesters of Spanish or French or whatever else that you have. And again, trying to 
to do that and not having maybe not being as prepared as some other folks and having to deal with all the demands of being a college athlete. So in theory, um, you might be able to major in a lot of things, but you also may have people in your ear saying what you should major in. And then there might be structural issues that prevent you from majoring in certain things. Right. So I know um, like sticking with this NIL, um, and we've been mostly talking about the male part of the sports, but as far as the females, because we know that they face a lot of disparity in everything, whether it's gym equipment, uh, uniforms, whatever, they don't get the same amount of focus on them as the male counterparts do. Do you see the NIL or them being able to get paid for their likeness, helping them get out there more? Or, and is that better for them? or? So I'm going to say something that some people may not like and go find controversial, <laughs> but that's what I do. <laughs> I, I really think that we're going to see uh, disparities where uh, white women athletes, in particular college athletes, will fare better in selected sports than black women athletes, for example. We already wow. see that in some sports like women's gymnastics, for example, where mm-hmm. you know a lot of black women are doing great things, uh, but, you know, you know, they um, among, they're among some of the um, most popular influencers on uh, social media. Again, white women gymnasts, uh, whereas you have a lot of black women who are running track and playing women's basketball and in other sports that are doing great things. But again, ultimately, these are uh, people who are business owners, corporate giants who may not look like you know the, the diversity that is America. And so when they're looking at someone who they want to be the face of their company or their product, that may not be a black woman's face. Right. It's probably going to yeah. be more likely to be a, a white woman's face or in some cases a white male face. Um, but I think we're going to see differences based upon race and gender. Um, that's my prediction. We'll see. We can come back in a couple of years and see if I'm right about that. But I, I, think be, I think you're going to be right. I think that it always, no matter how much we try to downplay race in all in all aspects of, of life in America, it always rears its ugly ugly head. No matter what, you know. Um, there's a the gymnast I can't remember her name right now. The LSU. She has over 2.5 million followers, mm-hmm. and she, and she's one of the people that they're they're predicting to make as much money as she can possibly make offer of her likeness because of her following on social media whereas you have someone um that we tend to make we're products of our society right and we're we tend to like you say like miss richardson that runs track um she made a mistake and i think those type of things will hinder us because we are a product of our society that we we tend to learn things that are that we're surrounded by a lot until we actually get to a PWI or get to a university and, and see how other people live and how how they function. Do you think these type of things will always be will always really rear its ugly head, or will at some point in time it will level the playing field and and it, we will see some type of equality going forward? So I'm sure you can predict what I'm about to say. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's right. I don't. I don't see it improving. And 
What's a shame, um, you know, to your point about uh, Ricky saying is that, and I've said this in other places, when it comes to Black people, we don't get the same kind of empathy and sympathy and forgiveness and redemption that uh, some white professional and college athletes get. Um, so there's a, that documentary about um, Jack Johnson, the first Black heavyweight uh, boxing champion called Unforgivable Blackness, and that really captures it. You know, um, we might do something wrong, or it might even be quite questionable as to whether or not, you know, it should be considered wrong or not. But because the person who's accused of doing it is black, you know, the way that people respond and the fact that they want you to be punished. And even when, you know, her suspension was finished, then, you know, that she couldn't be selected to be on the relay team. Now, I'm happy that Aaliyah Hobbs, who I think is a fabulous athlete, was able to be right. on that uh, relay and they won a gold medal nonetheless. But, you know, when it comes to some uh, white athletes when they do something wrong people are like oh they served their time <laughs> you know <laughs> so right. why can't they participate or they're you know say well of course they had a death in the family of a close family member what do you expect but we don't get that like black people can't you know have they can't be in mourning they can't grieve with a right. loved one like we're not human and so it's just a terrible thing and again when Derek Bell not only did he talk about peaks of progress but he really talked about the subordination of black people as being a permanent status and just you know really uh he encouraged black people to just find some uh, power in the struggle and that you don't stop fighting but recognize that it's not going to change and so you don't get you know feel despair about that you go in knowing that but you still um you know show up for the fight every day right right Wow. And not go ahead, Smash. No, nah, I was just commenting on that because I was just like, "Wow, I didn't, I didn't know it was like that." But um, I guess another thing I have too, kind of, because I, I took a um, a class. I think it was sociology of sports or whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, in there, they had a um, they had a demographic that showed that even in athletics, um, blacks in the health system don't get mm-hmm. treated like. The, the white counterparts have is that any truth to that or can you expound on that if you know anything about it? yeah so um well in terms of just in the leadership and um black uh in athletics i was surprised that there was a group called the uh it's like the black association of athletic directors and they had over 60 members i was like where have these people been and i didn't <laughs> even know that that was a group I was glad to know that they um, existed. But I've also learned over the last year or so about the lack of uh, mental health professionals within athletic departments, period, and how, you know, there's only a couple for all of these teams, and they oftentimes only travel uh, with the high revenue generating uh, sports. And so that leaves, you know, some of the other athletes quite vulnerable and that um, there's an underrepresentation of non-white people in those positions. And so um, that has been raised uh, as an issue. And I was just on a dissertation committee defense yesterday where um, Dr. Uh, Ify Davis was talking about black maternal health more broadly and about mm-hmm. how black mothers are are treated so it's a it's a societal problem and it's wow. also a problem that we see in sports as well right do, do you think oh go ahead smash go ahead i'll just uh real quick do any of the athletes at lsu come to you as a i mean you don't have to drop names but as a mentor or guidance in seeking this type of you know help from you 
Well, not in with regards to mental health. We have a fabulous um, staff that includes uh, Dr. Lakeitha Poole. And so, you know, um, they know that they can reach out to, you know, her and her team. Okay. The, one of the ways that I'm able to support students directly be, uh, beyond being the faculty athletics representative, I'm also one of the advisors for the Black Student Athlete Association, which was started after the killing of George Floyd. So we're trying to retool because some, you know, the founders have graduated or transferred. Um, you might know uh, Nikki Vargas. She was the women's basketball coach. She's now the president uh, of the um, uh, Las Vegas uh, women's uh, basketball. That's um, my team. That's my yeah. team. Yeah. She's <laughs> the president there now. So so we're, you know, retooling and uh, trying to identify more uh, advisors to support the Black Student Athlete Association. But yes, yeah, she was very central to the, their founding, to the uh, unity walk that they did. And she was just okay. a strong advocate for all college athletes, but Black college athletes uh in particular. And so that's one of the ways that uh, I've supported um, Black uh, college athletes at LSU directly over the last year or so. Yeah, awesome. And and that's, I mean, that's kind of, you kind of answered my question is like with the disparity in health and and different different things like that, there needs to be more of us that that looks like us so that they can have a, so that we can kind of educate them on on how we are and how we operate and how and the things that we need to be able to sustain within our sport or whatever industry that we partake in so you, you answered that so i think that i'm glad to hear that there are people that are in places of position of power to actually make those those type of changes that's awesome so we're gonna i know we take up a lot of your time here okay. but before we go let's get something what what does um, what 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 do you do for fun? What is this something that you do besides <laughs> rile up the masses? <laughs> now, that's a great question. So I try to get a workout every day, just watching TV and playing with my phone uh, on the treadmill, either at home or at um, Planet Fitness. Um, when I'm not, you know, working, I'm usually watching a Lifetime movie because it's mindless, and I know how they're always. <laughs> <laughs> uh, today I'll probably spend most of the day watching reruns of uh, the Golden Girls so I'm stuck in the 80s and <laughs> early 90s and so forth so yeah, nothing yeah. wrong with that yeah. nothing wrong with that that's Definitely. pretty much what so, I do <laughs> so you are, you are a New Yorker and then what was the culture shock <laughs> once you got down south what was the so, what was the biggest culture shock <laughs> being slow right <laughs> so yeah so I, I tell people I'm a New Yorker uh, for life I, I still have my 518 cell phone number I refuse to give it up for the 225 although I really you know, appreciate the people of Baton Rouge and Louisiana <laughs> um, but I would say that um, there are some things that were not hard and other things that are a bit more challenging yeah so having to have a conversation with everyone wherever you go before you can get what you want done was, was new for me. I will say that was the case. And then with the driving because I'm used to driving in, in New York City when I was working at John Jay and you just have to, you know, be as aggressive as everyone else or you're never going to get anywhere. Whereas here people like let you in anytime, anytime. There's hardly any traffic lights on some roads and you can go to an event and they can create a parking lot on a field of grass. It's a <laughs> 
that stuff uh, happening. Um, but my parents uh, were both from uh, Mississippi, and and uh, I grew up in a black church where everybody was from like Alabama, Mississippi, North Carolina. So I was all right, always around um, people from down south. And I just tell you this quick story: when I interviewed at LSU, and um, one of the professors took me to um, the Shaquille O'Neal um, Lounge where uh, at Live Cook for breakfast and they had a buffet and I went and I got some grits and the the, the professor was shocked. He was like, we don't get many Northerners down here who know about grits. <laughs> I'm like, are you kidding me? This is my, like, grits are my favorite food. I was raised on grits and I'm right. eating grits every day. So. Oh, but now that you speak of grits, now here's the controversy with between me and Smash now. I hope you right? heard talking about sugar and salt. Yeah, you yeah. already know it. Where, <laughs> where do you fall on the sugar or Sugar does, sugar does not belong. It's, it's yes. gotta go. It's gotta yes. go. No, no. Yes. And if someone says they got their soul food restaurant or southern restaurant and they don't have grits on the menu, I'm not eating. <laughs> I don't, even, I don't hey. even care if grits aren't good. Hey. I'm sugar all day. I'm sugar all day. No, Smash, no, no. this is a woman that's smarter than both of you <laughs> and I. And she knows sugar don't go on grits. I gotta go. I gotta have sugar. I, gotta, I can't eat it without sugar. I just can't. <laughs> one more thing before you go. What is your What is your favorite Louisiana delicacy? What's, what's your favorite your favorite go-to? Oh, I like, um, I don't even know what they call it, but it's like, I love catfish. And so I'm always going to order catfish. But when they put the etouffee on top of it, that's just dangerous. And so... <laughs> That's probably my favorite. And then I just have to add um, my oldest son, when he goes to get a po' boy and I give him a few dollars to do that, he always comes back with a side order of fried okra for me. And I'm just like, no, you can't. Oh, okay. But I, I th- we definitely thank you taking the time oh, out. I do um, have one. Your, go I ahead, do have one personal question, though. Is there a way that I or anybody else that's listening and watching can can take your course online? So you know how um, you know about the university industrial complex. <laughs> so you know the answer to that, but I'm happy to have conversations with anyone who's interested about okay. you know learning about particular areas that they're looking for resources. You know, want to know books that they could read. I'm terrible about promoting my own books. I have now like uh, authored or edited over 25, and I tell folks that I'm happy wow. to. Do electronic versions of it you know on a case-by-case basis uh and so i can be supportive that way and anyone who wants to can email me uh, at dr martin at gmail.com just all one word d-r-l-o-r-i-m-a-r-t-i-n at gmail.com and happy to help in any way i can awesome and i counted 18 she said 25 plus so i'm like She's done a lot of writing. She's done a lot of writing. <laughs> but I, I definitely thank you for, for taking your time out and, and helping our audience educate us a little bit about the sociality of and the, the way that we think, the way that we act. One of the reasons why we started this show was because to open that window up so others can see how we think and how we act and not just the stereotypical things that they see in the, in the mass media. So I, I definitely thank you for, for that. Smash, any closing words before we get up out of here? Uh, thank you for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Um, you're a welcome guest, like I said. Um, and not no disrespect to any of our other guests, but you 
have been one of my favorite guests just by oh, thank you. I appreciate you know, that. <laughs> so uh, just because I'm interested in the field that you're that you're in. So it's just, you know, admiration from my end. So thank, but thank you for coming on today. Thank you. I appreciate all the love and hope we can maybe do it again sometime. Yeah, definitely. No doubt. So with that being said, much love and we out. Peace. We have returned to claim the pyramid. Partying on the mothership. I am the mothership connection. Get down in 3D. Light year groove.